Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we will continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 3. We are discussing the fall of man. And one of the things that I really want to reinforce this evening is that as we are discussing the fall of man, and we really continue to develop what we have already been talking about over the past couple weeks, I want to make sure that we are internalizing these verses, these words, and as we do so, really integrate them into our relationship with Jesus Christ. It would be very easy for us to keep at arm's length what is going on here. But the whole point of sacred scripture is that we go deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ, right? If we are going to know who Jesus Christ is, then we have to first know sacred scripture, right? What was it that St. Jerome once said? Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. So we go deeper into sacred scripture, and certainly we do so with the Old Testament, so as to come to better understand who Jesus is as friend, right? As friend. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. Uh, And so if we don't understand the promise, then how are we going to better understand the fulfillment? Remember what I talked about yesterday evening, that Jesus Christ is the counter-image to Adam, right? That counter-image, that just as Adam, by his transgression, made us sinners subject to death, so Christ, by his obedience, secured the grace that makes us heirs of eternal life. And so It is coming to understand that truth and kind of how it plays out in salvation history that we might better understand what this life of grace is all about, at the very least, hopefully appreciating the dynamism of how Christ fulfills the Old Testament. So this is, again, uh, some of the value of studying the Old Testament. All right, all that being said, Genesis chapter 3, I will go ahead and start here with verse 8. I will read verses 8 to 13. And as I do this, my friends, listen closely to the words. Hopefully you have been reading the book of Genesis, but if you haven't, listen closely to the words. If you're in your car, if you're at home, wherever you might be, pay close attention. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, (laughs) The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. In verses 8 to 13, 
you have this kind of interrogation, right? Interrogated by the Lord, Adam does what? But shifts the blame to Eve in verse 12. And then in verse 13, (laughs) Eve shifts the blame to the serpent. And so just in these two verses, we can begin to appreciate how sin sows division and discord between the spouses. Isn't it interesting in verse 8 that we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. You know, if you are afraid of someone and uh, you think you hear that someone that you're afraid of, what do you do? Typically you hide. So this is what (laughs) sin does. Uh, It can cause this unholy-like fear. Unholy-like fear. What do we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15? What does St. Paul say? That you did not receive the spirit of slavery in which you fall back into what? Fear! But the spirit of adoption in which you cry, Abba, Father. You've heard me speak to this before. So often we think of hate as the opposite to love. But in reality, is it not fear? Why? Because with fear, you have this kind of entrapment where you can no longer be the person that God calls you to be. Why? Because you're hiding from God. You're hiding from God. And then when God exposes the sin for what it is, what do we do? We point the finger. He did it. She did it. You know, my friends, off the top, I was talking about the importance of internalizing these words, internalizing these verses. It is so easy for us to talk about Adam and Eve in some external way. Look at what they did, pointing the finger at each other. He did it, she did it, or in the case of of Eve, pointing the, the finger at serpent. Either way, neither Adam or Eve are taking ownership of what they've done. They're accusing. This is what fear does. You know, my friends, there is something developed by the spiritual master's that is called a kind of holy dis-ease, where we are created um, with an unsettled heart. But when you put it in the context of a holy unsettled heart, what does that mean? We are not at peace until we are resting in God. What does St. Augustine say? My heart is restless until it rests in thee. That classic line that comes to us from St. Augustine. There is something to say about a holy dis-ease, that we are unsettled until we are settled in God. The very word peace in Hebrew shalom means covenant harmony with God, right? to be in that peaceful relationship with God. So this is really a goal of the Christian life. But my friends, what happens to that dis-ease without revelation? Ultimately, it becomes a kind of disease. And when it is a disease, what do we do? We compromise our desire for God with things of this world. And in the end, our attempts to satisfy this desire with the things of this world widens the gap between who we are and who we ought to be. But again, what did I just say about the whole of the spiritual life, about finding that covenant harmony relationship with God, about finding that 
peace, that interior peace. The way in which we do that is by closing the gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be. We have this human tendency to focus on everything and everyone, projecting accusations upon politicians, journalists, maybe even in some cases, athletes, saying such things as, you know, if they only did it our way, things would be the way they ought to be. But in reality, God asks us first, are you the way you ought to be? Are you the way you ought to be? And how here can we not think about the great doctor of common sense, G.K. Chesterton, when he was asked the question, Mr. Chesterton, there are so many problems in the world. How can we best solve the problem? What is wrong with the world, Mr. Chesterton? And his response in a simple postcard was, I am. I am. So when the doctor of common sense was asked, what's wrong with the world? His response was, I am. Could if he projected an accusation upon a certain politician of his day, a certain journalist of his day, a certain drive-by media personality of his day, and could it be as said, if only they did it this way, it would be the way it ought to be? He understood that when it comes to the great question of what's wrong with the world, it starts with the person you see in the mirror. Brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve were not looking in the mirror. They were too busy accusing others. And see, that's the thing. When you're so busy accusing other people about what they did to you, it doesn't leave any time for you to self-reflect into what you did. And this is why self-examinations every day are so important. The more time you reflect into a kind of self-examination of your day, asking honestly our Lord, Lord, where were you in this moment or that moment? And even more specifically, Lord, how could have I been more present to you in this moment or that moment? Where did I fail you? How can I be better next time? As opposed to, at the end of the day, pointing the finger at, again, this person or that person for what they did to you. Do we spend our evenings and nights talking with our, our family and friends about everything that everyone else did to you? Or do we spend our evenings and nights with our family and friends solving all the problems in the world? Lord knows I've been there. And I think to some degree, it's good to talk about what's going on in the world. For sure, that's good. But not at the cost of your own relationship with God. Remember that all-important proverb of what you feed grows. The more time you spend talking about things you can't control, then the more time you will spend talking about things you can't control. Conversely, if you spend more time reflecting into a kind of self-examination, the more you will spend time reflecting into a self-examination. And oh, by the way, the world will be better for it, right? If you want to solve the problems of the world start with the person you see in the mirror. This is the message of Jesus Christ, is it not? In his great Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? He talks about what it means to love your neighbor. He talks about what it means to be active in the world, for sure. But what does he first say? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who rely upon God for all things. God will then order your life. God will show you what you need to be present to. Okay, so very, very important. So let us not be concerned with saying, if only they did it my way or our way, then life will be the way it ought to be. Let us hear that question from God. Are you the way you ought to be? And oh, by the way, speaking of questions, how about the first question we get in all of sacred scripture? (laughs) Where are you? Where are you? Isn't that interesting? What we have in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 is the first question from God to man in all of sacred scripture. Where are you? And certainly we know (laughs) that this is not a literal inquiry of Adam's whereabouts. God didn't lose Adam and Eve. He can't lose someone. But more, my friends, an invitation for Adam to confess his wrongdoing and seek forgiveness. An invitation. Remember what the word invitation means. Invitatio. To summon. To summon. To call out. To call forth. Where are you, Adam? In other words, what is he asking? (laughs) Who have you become? Where are you at in life? He asks the question so that Adam might take ownership of not his whereabouts, but who he is before God. Okay? Because this is the nature of an invitation. Remember, the invitatio, which literally translates as to summon, also means to challenge, to challenge, to call forth, to call out. So this is what God is doing. And again, this is why Jesus himself asks so many questions. I have always found it to be a fascinating truth to be mindful that in the gospel, Jesus is asked 308 questions. Isn't that interesting? If you were to go through the gospel narratives, you will count 308 questions. Now, what I believe to be more fascinating about this is that in response to those 308 questions, 305 times, Jesus himself asks a question. Because he needed clarity? No. Because he didn't understand the question? No. Because he wanted the person who was asking the question to take ownership of what they were asking. For his sake? No. For their sake. Right? So when God says to Adam, where are you? It's not for God's sake. He knows where Adam is. He hasn't lost Adam. It's for Adam's sake. It's an invitation to come forth, to be called out. And this is really what all questioning should do, to call out the truth. And this is why Jesus himself is so busy asking questions. He's calling out the truth in the initial question. Now, what's more, and I find this to be quite interesting, what's the first question in the New Testament? If where are you is the first question in the Old Testament... What's the first question in the New Testament? It's actually a question we're going to hear in all about a week and a half. Because it's a question in the narrative of the Magi. Not where are you, but where is he? Where is he? Isn't that fascinating? So the first question in the Old Testament is where are you from God to Adam? And then the first question in the New Testament comes from the wise men. Where is he? Right? 
They're searching out. They're inquiring. They're looking for him. They desire to know the truth. And I think here we should all become one of the wise men, huh? Asking that question. Where is he? I want to know where he is. I want to prostrate myself before him as the wise man did, right? I want to know the joy of finding God as the wise men did, right? Where are you to where is he? I find that a pretty provocative juxtaposition that I think can help us in our own relationship with God. Where are you? Where is he? In the case of Genesis, from God to Adam, we have an invitation for Adam to confess his wrongdoing and seek forgiveness. This is what is at the heart of this. What about this walking, huh? What about this walking? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I love this imagery that is very human. If you were to fast forward to, I think it's what, um, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. What do we read there? And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This is not an expression that should be taken literally, as though God could be moved or swayed by an emotional wave of regret that goes against the nature of God. Scripture teaches that God does not change as man does, right? Nor does he repent as man does. What we're made to see here is that the Bible often describes the thoughts and actions of God in human terms, really in order to make the mystery of God more understandable to human minds, right? Where else do we see God being described as having physical features such as hands or arms? Well, if you were to go to the book of Exodus, chapter 7, verse 5, God has hands. Hosea, chapter 11, verse 3, we see God having arms. What about Exodus chapter 24, verse 10? God having feet. The book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9, he has white hair, right? Psalm chapter 27, verse 8, he has a face. All of these are kind of figurative or anthropomorphic expressions, if you will, say that five times fast, to essentially connect with man, right? So hands, arms, feet, white hair, a face. These are word pictures that help to communicate really the personal nature of God. And I speak to all of this because in so many ways, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we have this very physical, human word being used walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Walking. A very human-like description of God that stresses his closeness to man and woman in Eden. Uh, What else is interesting here is that the expression in Hebrew that is walking is elsewhere described as the Lord dwelling in his sanctuary in the midst of Israel. Sanctuary, that which is holy. That word is translated in the Greek as um, hagios. Paul talks about being sanctified in Jesus Christ. He uses the Greek hagiazo 
to be made holy in Jesus Christ. How are we made holy in Jesus Christ? Well, by spending time with him in his sanctuary, and oh, by the way, by walking with him. We are made more holy in God by walking with God, and walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day, where here they are hiding from God. We are made to walk with God openly, honestly, in the cool of the day. Remember how I've spoken to it before. God meets us exactly how he made us and walks with us exactly as he is. And as he does so, he reveals to us who we are as created in his image and likeness, and that indeed, yes, we are going to be unsettled until we find that peace with him, until we spend more time with him. Okay, what's more here? Well, let us go ahead and read verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will put enmity. This, my friends, is a crucial, crucial verse in the book of Genesis. Why? Because it is the proto-evangelion. It is the first gospel, okay? It is the first piece of good news, if you will, after the fall of man. So within the larger construct of the fall of man, we have good news. Hmm? We have good news. The good news that foretells of the eventual triumph of the woman and her offspring over Satan after a kind of protracted period of hostility. You know, Christian tradition gives this text a kind of threefold interpretation, if you will. First, a kind of um, messianic interpretation, where Christ is the individual who tramples the devil underfoot. Certainly, if you're to go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, this is uh, quite explicit. How about an ecclesiological interpretation? And again, for those of you who just asked the question, what does the word ecclesiological mean? That's just simply a word that means the study of the church. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Uh, the word church comes from a Greek word, ecclesia, right? So ecclesiology, right? Ecclesiology, so the study of the church. So there's, there's a church dimension. If you were to go to uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17... We see that the church is the offspring that shares in this victory. And lastly, there is a Mariological interpretation. What is Mariological? Well, that's just a, you know, Mariology means the study of Mary. So there's a, a Mariological interpretation, a Mariological dimension that speaks to how Mary is the promised woman who bears the Redeemer as spoken to, just not in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, but again, if you were to fast forward to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Okay, now it's interesting. For those of you who might be asking the question, okay, you said a messianic dimension, a church dimension, and then Mary dimension. If you want to better understand Mary, well, better understand the church. And if you want to better understand the church, 
then we have to first better understand Christ. You know, we use the word uh, ology to talk about what? The study of something. The most important study out there is Christology, the study of Christ. All other ologies properly flow out of a good Christology. So what do I mean? If you're studying, say, the Holy Spirit, that is what's called pneumatology. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. Uh, if you're studying the church, ecclesiology, if you're studying Mary, if you're studying whatever it is that you're studying, all good studies as they relate to uh, theology, the study of God, always comes back to a sound Christology. And so, yeah, rightfully, there is first and foremost a messianic interpretation. And once we understand that, I think we will better understand the other interpretations. Bottom line is, <laughs> again, this passage is the first gospel. And as such, it really stands out as the first revelation of God's mercy to man. That as our God is a God of justice, he is also a God of mercy. And certainly, as a God of mercy, what does he ask? Where are you? Where are you? I know where you are. This is a question for your benefit. And so he says to you, he says to me, I mean, this is a question really that we ought to ask of ourselves every day. Put it into mind and a heart, God asking us every morning, where are you? Where are you at with me? How are things going? Show yourself to me. And then let's, let us respond to that question like the wise men were asking. Where is he? Where can I find you? Help me better understand you because I want to be in your presence. This, my friends, is not only what the deeper truth is all about in this narrative of the fallen man, but also, as it is, it's one that speaks to already God's mercy as he seeks us out. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.